Chapter Seventeen of The Whispering Man by Henry Kitchell Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen The Story Is Told. Why, in the first place, said he, Carlton Stancliffe was a real actor, and he had a real trouble with his throat undoubtedly he went to dr marshall as a perfectly bona fide patient upon the recommendation of some other physician of course he knew who dr marshall was but perhaps the old enmity had died away perhaps he was merely curious to see what the elder man would be like he couldn't have been sure of course whether dr marshall would recognize him or not but then he wouldn't have cared much his own success had been great enough to make him indifferent to the doctor's opinion of him and as for any real shame or regret for the thing he had done he simply never had any dr marshall must have failed completely to recognize him i think that he must have told hyde that his complaint was incurable or at least have described it sufficiently so that a man who was himself a physician of no mean attainment could have recognized the fact do you remember my telling you of dr marshall's experience with a man who was doomed to go mad and didn't know it i am practically certain that hyde or stancliffe was that man now just imagine hyde's feelings sitting there in the office of his old enemy and learning that the disease he had thought lightly of was really incurable remember that it spelled absolute disaster to him in his new profession he must have heard that verdict with despair and not only despair but something else for the man who sat there behind the desk sentencing him so coolly to what might about as well have been death was the very man who had caused his former downfall but for his marshall's meddling in what was no affair of his he hyde might be sitting there at the other side of the desk rich famous secure possibly mrs marshall may have been an unconscious factor in the situation it's altogether likely that he had seen her had had her pointed out to him he was a distant cousin of hers remember and very naturally in that hour of despair he counted her as rightfully his as one of the things that the cool confident successful man across the desk had deprived him of i think the idea of his ability to fill the doctor's chair and his place in society his sort of potential right to possess all that the doctor possessed i think it must have been with that idea that the notion of the crime came to him once it had come it must have fascinated him it was so perfect so safe and to his mind never well balanced morally so perfect a piece of retributive justice that to have it occur to him at all was followed as a matter of course by his preparing to put it into execution i am surprised that you should call it safe i objected the idea of waiting there in the office for an hour or more with the murdered body of his victim tucked away somewhere while he was admitting patients and talking to them in the character of the man whose life he had just taken seems to me rash to the verge of madness either dr armstrong or miss jerome could have come in at any time and they would have detected him at a glance but they wouldn't come in unless he summoned them that's the point said geoffrey 
there is nobody whose privacy is so sacredly guarded as that of a physician in consultation with his patients no the only possible danger would come from some old patient of the doctor's who knew him well and who would expect to be known that danger however he obviated by waiting his chance the beauty of the crime he was planning lay in this that he need not make any move until a favourable chance presented itself he had gone to the office twice before that week fully prepared to commit the crime he had set his heart upon and only deferring it because he found that all the circumstances were not exactly to his liking he told me once i observed reflectively that every well-planned crime had that particular merit there is one thing i hadn't thought of though said jeffrey with a puzzled look how about his voice how could he be sure that wouldn't go back on him i should think that consideration might have upset the whole plan evidently it didn't certainly not at least when he was talking to miss carr but how could he be sure it wouldn't well said i he told me that his voice never failed when he was talking in another character than his own he said that if he could only have made the managers believe it he could have played his parts just as well as ever that is the theory he diverted me with the night he smashed the siphon now on that one morning jeffrey went on everything went beyond his hopes he not only had a succession of patients behind him who he was able to ascertain were strangers to dr marshall he also had pomeroy and unless i am mistaken he recognized him no doubt said i he practically admitted as much to me jeffrey looked at me with a rather rueful smile i do begin to regret your opportunities he said at any rate stancliffe went into dr marshall's office that morning fully fortified against mischance and fully prepared for what he had to do he knew exactly as a result of previous visits what the doctor's routine of examination was he had studied out the exact moment when his chance would be best when he was lying back submitting to examination with dr marshall bending over him he had everything in his favour a clever surgeon's skill and quickness and a total absence of suspicion on the part of his victim you know from the testimony at the inquest how that poison acts and can imagine what happened as well as i can dr marshall went down without a cry the murderer then sealed up with a piece of court plaster the wound his needle had made then he proceeded quite deliberately to make up for the part he was about to play remember he had all the time he wanted he had no fear whatever of interruption when everything was finally ready he settled himself in the doctor's chair and rang for the next patient he knew he was secure from detection the next three patients who came in may not have received as valuable advice from him as they would have had from dr marshall but at any rate the impostor was a good enough physician himself to give them instructions and advice which they would never call in question when he rang the bell the fourth time he undoubtedly expected to see pomeroy and must have been a little taken aback when gwendolen carr came in instead he had made the mistake of not seeing that the recognition between himself and pomeroy had been mutual but of course the moment miss carr told him who she was namely the young woman his son was anxious to marry 
from that moment on all was easy for him all he had to do was to quarrel with her violently to make sure that she should leave the office in a state of the utmost anger against himself and the thing was done once he had dismissed her the thing was all but accomplished he had to remove his own makeup and conceal the traces of it to drag the body of the doctor out of its hiding-place and prop it up in the chair that done he could watch his chance to slip out into the corridor without attracting attention and get away i am sure that when he did so he must have felt absolutely secure against detection he was under no necessity to manufacture evidence for he had what would protect him better an irresistible presumption the presumption that dr marshall was alive when the bell rang that summoned gwendolyn carr into his office it was nothing more than a presumption for there wasn't a scrap of evidence to support it the patients who followed stancliffe were all admitted strangers armstrong testified that he had not been in since early in the morning there was really some evidence against the presumption miss carr told you that jack had found it impossible to believe that his father would have said the things to her that she reported yet so strongly were our minds set in the other direction that the only thing that occurred to us to do was to doubt the girl's veracity never to dream for an instant that the person who said the thing she reported might not have been jack's father but somebody else of course the girl's knowledge of her own innocence was a protection to stancliffe for he could rely upon her to tell the truth under questioning in spite of the strength of the case she would create against herself by so doing but right there occurred one little incident which he could not have foreseen her testimony as to the hour at which she left the office her seeing the clock in the mirror and reading it backward left an interval of forty minutes vacant and made possible the case against armstrong of course it was to stancliffe's interest that a sustained case should be made against somebody and it was possible to make a better case against miss carr when all the truth was known than against armstrong also he could additionally safeguard himself by getting the credit of successful detective work it must have been a queer game to play pretending to make a series of brilliant discoveries of things he had known all along but apparently he played it well neither of you suspected him at least that night in the office when he sprang his coup about the clock suspected him i should think not i exclaimed gwendolen thanked him for having thought of it and for clearing it up for of course that was the one insoluble mystery between her and jack what did stancliffe look like when she thanked him that night geoffrey asked curiously i remember now said i i didn't see his face he was staring out the window all the while leaning back on his stick with his hands clasped behind him now why in the world said geoffrey didn't she identify his hands then she is the most observing young woman i ever saw he wore gloves said i in spite of the fact that it was a hot night yes i admitted reluctantly there's another of the queer things i might have noticed i understand geoffrey continued that you put it up to stancliffe to decide whether she should be allowed to go home and remain quite free from surveillance or not yes said i 
Jeffrey shrugged his shoulders and shivered a little. I'm glad he's dead, said he. He was a devil, if ever one walked the earth, and I shall sleep better tonight for knowing that he has gone to his reward. How did it all come to you, this account of the matter that you're giving me? I asked. Did it spring into your mind, complete, the moment I made that remark about the tobacco, or did it just grow up gradually, one detail at a time? Why, I saw the main idea at once, of course, but I didn't know how to fill it up. The horrible danger that I know Gwendolyn Carr must be in at that very moment didn't leave much leisure for contemplating Stancliffe's past villainies. He was in process of carrying out a more diabolical scheme at that moment, and we had to be quick if we could hope to thwart him. I was hoping you would come to that, said I. What made you think Gwendolyn's life was in danger? Why, she made that remark about the smell of tobacco to Stancliffe as well as to you, didn't she? Well, that told him she had in her hands the clue that would destroy him, although she herself didn't recognize it. But it was only a question of time before she could make that same remark to someone who would catch its import. So long as she was alive and in possession of that knowledge, his life couldn't be safe wasn't it after she made the remark about the tobacco that he told her she could go home alone yes said i and she announced didn't she that she was going in the surface cars well of course that assured him of his opportunity to get out to flatbush ahead of her it was he as i suppose you have guessed who passed you on the sidewalk out there had you not been with her he would very likely have killed her then and there on her own doorstep and in some way to suggest that it was a case of suicide being foiled in that scheme he simply thought of a better one slower but surer it seems to me said i he ran a good deal of risk in taking a room there in her boarding-house i don't know said Geoffrey. His only risk was an encounter with her, which really must have been rather easy to avoid. And then, if she had seen him, she would have thought of nothing more than that he had been playing the spy upon her. I still don't see exactly what he meant to do. What could he hope to do, unless he could literally scare her to death or out of her wits? The only wonder to me, said Geoffrey gravely, is that she wasn't found dead the second morning after you left her out there stancliffe knew didn't he that she had been taking something to make herself sleep yes she mentioned it to both of us well what i suppose he did was this and i should be greatly surprised if i proved wrong he got into her room during her absence and substituted for that packet of powders a number of perfectly neutral ones that could have no effect upon her whatever and one at the bottom of the package which contained the concentrated dose that should have been distributed all through them the natural thing for a person to do in her state of mind half mad with terror and altogether in despair would be to seek sleep at any cost to take one powder after another until she could get some effect she would get no effect until she took the last one and that would kill her and when they found her in the morning a half-dozen empty papers would be taken for sufficient proof that she had committed suicide when the suspicion which already pointed against her in the marshall case came out 
as it inevitably would together with the discovery of the syringe stancliff would have another irresistible presumption to fortify his first one with it was the most utterly fiendish thing i ever heard of and it was only thwarted by the incredible courage and sanity of that young girl we sat and smoked a while in silence after that then i picked up the conversation where geoffrey had dropped it yes she's the true metal no doubt about it what a veritable refiner's fire she has come through she can't have known an untormented hour since she left her lover that morning full of high hopes for the innocent ruse they meant to work on his father think what an accumulation of horror has been piled upon her since then shaken by stancliff's attack upon her by her quarrel with jack tired out with the strain of the inquest then to have that white-faced wild-eyed young lover of hers as good as accuse her of his father's murder and to have that accusation backed up by facts that seemed to justify it the only support she had was the consciousness of her own innocence do you call that a support said geoffrey i think it would have been easier for her if she had been guilty if she had been guilty she could have confessed and taken the consequences and got the thing off her mind it must have taken a good deal of courage not to confess anyway not to have made a lying admission that she had committed a crime that she was really perfectly innocent of that happens sometimes you know happens i believe oftener than we suppose but she isn't the sort of person to do a thing like that she wouldn't make a lying confession and she wouldn't destroy herself she just sat tight and saw it through i hope the man she marries will be good enough for her he's in love with her anyway i said he's a good clean sort of chap i think they'll be very happy geoffrey assented rather grudgingly well he's got a heavy score against himself to make up he's the one man who ought to have seen straight through the presumption that protected stancliff when she told him things that he knew his father couldn't have said he ought to have reached then and there the true conclusion that the person who said them was someone else than his father and when she said twenty minutes to twelve instead of twenty minutes past he should have assumed that the clock was wrong well i protested that's easy to say afterwards but there certainly was evidence enough and geoffrey caught the word out of my mouth evidence there was evidence against every single innocent person in this case pomeroy armstrong gwendolen carr the only person against whom there wasn't any was the guilty man himself no evidence doesn't amount to much unless it's tied on behind the right guess then he laughed and stretched his arms well he said that takes us back to the point we started from the very matter we were discussing before we read the paper with the account of dr marshall's death in it and as for me i'm not going around the circle again i've been around once and that's enough for me stancliff's dead and i've fixed it up with the lieutenant to get armstrong out he's got all the facts necessary i'm going to sleep for three hours and then i'm going to take a colour box and go up to bronx park and paint and the reporter or other person who thinks he's going to get another word out of me about the marshall mystery is seriously mistaken but i protested you'll have to tell it once more to madeline and miss carr and jack 
you promised them a report at breakfast time you remember it's nearly that now and do you think i've gone all over this once with you with the intention of serving it up again rechauffe over the breakfast table no from now on any one who wants to know anything about dr marshall and the whispering man will be gently but firmly referred to you i may take this occasion to observe that my friend has remained perfectly inflexible in this resolution as a consequence i have been kept telling the story over and over again until now in self-defence i have sat down and written it out hereafter any one that wants to know about the story will be referred by me in turn to these pages upon the last of which or nearly i hope i am now writing there is indeed but little more to say at the earliest decent and reasonable hour i went up to the marshal house where i found madeline superintending as if they were babes in the wood the breakfast of her convalescent stepson and his fiancée in answering the first of the eager questions they showered upon me i am afraid i ruined my tale by beginning at wrong end too but once their first curiosity was satisfied they demanded the whole story from beginning to end and i assenting we adjourned to the library the room where madeline was first introduced into this tale for the purpose the hour was still early and the spring morning not very warm so the fire which glowed on the hearth had a good practical justification for itself i should have held it justified had the room been stifling hot without it just by the way it played over and caressed madeline's face the two young lovers occupied the sofa at the farther side of the library jack in consideration of the early stages of his convalescence half reclining upon a heap of pillows while gwendolen sat near oh very near and well that needn't go into this story anyway the face i watched was madeline's as she watched them i could hardly tell my story for looking at it it was half eager half regretful yet wholly tender and all alight with the new understanding jack took an even more severe view of his credulity regarding gwendolen's guilt than geoffrey had evidently it would take him a long while to forgive himself for not having seen the thing which now that it was past seemed that it might have been obvious to all of us my recital was a heavy strain upon him as indeed upon gwendolen herself so presently i cut it short promising the rest at some later day i took my leave and left them in the library but madeline followed me down the stairs aren't they delicious she said to me referring to the couple we had left behind didn't it almost make the tears come just to watch them i hope they'll be charitable and let me watch a good deal for that's all i've got left well it's something to get the real thing at last even if it's at second hand i've learned a good deal in two weeks cliff madeline said i but what i said to her and what she said to me then and afterwards though not so very long afterwards what she had been saying over and over again ever since what she said when leaning over the back of my chair she saw that i was writing on this page is no concern positively none of any living creature in the world 
but our two selves. The End End of Chapter 17 End of The Whispering Man by Henry Kitchell Webster